Well, turning your Bibles, please, to John chapter 12. Again, we're going to be in verses 12 through 26. John chapter 12, 12 through 26. The Romans, the Romans established a military tradition called the triumph. The triumph, or as it would later be called by other nations that copied this tradition, the royal entry or the triumphal entry. This triumph or this triumphal entry served as a civil ceremony and increasingly as a religious ceremony as the emperors, beginning with Caesar Augustus, increasingly became considered among deity. And the purpose of the ceremony or this procession or this parade was to officially commemorate and celebrate a victory, a triumph in foreign battle. These parades would begin, as you're watching the parade coming to you, they would begin with the captive leaders, uh, these kings who were conquered uh, from these conquered peoples, followed behind by their soldiers who had been defeated. And these people, these, these conquered kings and these conquered troops, these conquered peoples, were usually led to their execution or put in a place where they could be put on display for mockery, for ridicule. Uh, following behind them, next in line, would have been uh, much of the spoil that had been captured, which at times would have included uh, carefully crafted models or paintings that depicted important parts of the battle or important, important parts of the military campaign. So those artists had to go with them and had to get to work if they had that victory so they could get ready to tell the story when they got back uh, to their home. And then following that would have been uh, several Roman officials, uh, officials, the magistrates, prominent people in the empire, and behind them, the victorious general. The last one through, the victorious general, uh, with his mighty horses, his beautiful chariot. And this whole procession, this parade, uh, when in Rome, would lead to the temple of Jupiter, where sacrifices were then made. The tradition grew and grew and then was borrowed and copied by other nations right through history. Forms of the triumphal entry have celebrated everything from military victories to, more recently, the successful arrival of Santa Claus in New York City. Connecting the dots now, are we? (laughs) In his chariot, carried by his mighty steeds. Okay. Um, Or to the celebration of an athletic achievement. This is our country, right? This is where we are in our time in history, not just our country, but much of the world. Uh, So the last triumphal entry that I'm aware of happened a few weeks ago in Washington, D.C. Maybe you remember, in honor of the Washington Nationals baseball team and their triumph in the World Series. This is now what triumphal entries are about. Uh, One thing that has remained true of all triumphal entries throughout history is that they have followed what would have been considered a sizable triumph. They followed triumph, hence the name. Every triumphal entry should have followed a triumph. But it seems there was at least one exception, which took place in Jerusalem in the first century for a man named Jesus from Nazareth. So, Welcome to Palm Sunday. 
Of course, it's not actually that day on the calendar, but it is that day in our text today as we continue to study God's word passage by passage and verse by verse of the Gospel of John. So we are in John 12, starting in verse 12. Here we go. The next day. So this is Monday. The dinner party we read about last week was John 12, 1 through 11. That was Sunday. So now Monday, the large crowd that had come to the feast, and this feast is referring to Passover, Okay, this time of Passover, uh, historians believe at this point in history there would have been typically about a hun- about a million people, one million people there at Jerusalem at this Passover celebration. So this large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. If you remember, they'd been asking one another if Jesus was going to be there. Uh, look up at John eleven fifty five through fifty seven. It says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves in preparation. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And we asked, we asked why would they say such a thing? Verse 57, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So the Pharisees had said this, they had made this decree, so everybody in Jerusalem should have had this posture of, if you see him, turn him in. And they're wondering, is he coming, is he coming? And now it says in John 12, verse 12, they know now. They know he's coming. Now they knew and they got word that Jesus was here and they were pumped. They were excited. Matthew 21 tells us that part of this crowd This massive crowd was following Jesus into town. Jesus first, the crowd following behind. And part of the crowd was already in Jerusalem awaiting his arrival. Just just to give us a visual of how this would have looked. I don't know that it would be right to expect that all one million people were there uh, shouting out and crying out to Christ as he entered in. It might have been hard for them to all have gotten word and for all of Jerusalem to be there on that street at that time. But as many as could fill the streets who had gotten word fast enough, who were coming behind as well, coming behind Jesus from the direction of Bethany, certainly enough people to convince the Sanhedrin that they were losing or had lost this popularity contest. They were losing their grasp of control, as we'll see them admit later. So verse 13, so they, this is the crowd, they took branches of palm trees. In Leviticus 23, God instructed Israel to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, in a number of ways, one of them being with these palm branches, with the use of palm branches. Uh, But over time, so this was a command from God for that festival, not Passover. But over time, the celebratory use of those branches started to carry over into the other feasts, such as including Passover. And they would have uh, most likely been used to celebrate events like, for instance, the Maccabean Revolt that had happened in between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ. So like a military and political type triumph, a military political victory. So it would make sense if the king, the Messiah, was coming into Jerusalem at Passover, uh, perhaps he was coming to prepare the nation for sure victory, for triumph over Rome. So perhaps in their minds isn't as an act of great faith in their minds, right? We think that we're doing this out of faith. These Jews believe they'd better get those palm branches out, get them ready. And then it says, 
in verse 13, and this crowd, they went out to meet him. They left out, went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And we wonder, where does this statement come from? What in the world does this mean? Hosanna in the Hebrew is literally, help, I pray, or save now, I pray. And this statement they're making is is right from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It says this, save us, we pray. There's Hosanna. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So these people that are crying out as Jesus comes are loosely quoting Psalm 118. And this is a messianic psalm. They know this. So the crowd is attributing the title of Messiah to Jesus. Sounds great, doesn't it? They're acknowledging Jesus is their Messiah. These people just heralded the coming of their king. They were calling Jesus their king. And in so doing, remember what the Pharisees had told them to do, turn him in. So in heralding him as their king, as their Messiah, they're also rejecting the authority of the Sanhedrin in this one act. Okay, the Jewish leaders are putting up most wanted signs in town. And the masses have just called this wanted man their king. With that being said, remember this. What, what had Jesus done? Or what did Jesus uh, do before when they tried to make him king? Back in John 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, uh, those thousands, if you remember, wanted to make him king. They tried to get him, rush him, and make him their king. And what did he do? He withdrew. He went out and went away to be alone. And yet this time, this time he wasn't leaving. He wasn't evading them. And do you see how this time, from the perspective of these people who are clamoring for their king, maybe this time Jesus was accepting his calling. Maybe this time uh, he's ready to be king. He just wasn't ready before. He, he didn't want the attention or the responsibility. He knew the risk was, was great. But now, maybe now he's ready. How exciting. How excited they all must have been. But how did Jesus think about this? How did Jesus feel about all this applause? What was Jesus' view of the people of Jerusalem? Two passages, Luke 19, 41 and 42, gives us this insight. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. This is where we start to see this contrast. They want war and victory. And Christ says, I'm bringing peace but now they're hidden from your eyes. Matthew 23, 37, this might be familiar to us. Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. All of this praise, all of these people so excited proclaiming the coming of their king and Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Jesus knows that these people are cheering for him in a vain, 
spiritually ignorant way. Yet he's not leaving their presence. Now he's coming. He's coming right into this city. And of course, how? Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey. Not a white charger. Not a war horse like he'll ride in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And also, in contrast with the Roman triumphal entry, uh, not with four horses and beautiful chariot, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey. Jesus has come as the Prince of Peace. And so he rides a donkey, symbolizing a humble and peaceful purpose. It says Jesus found a young donkey, and it says in verse 14, he sat on it, and just as it is written, prophecy fulfilled, here it is, verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. That's just a, a, a phrase for the people of Jerusalem. Fear not, people of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. How will we know? Sitting on a donkey's colt. This is Zechariah 9, verse 9. This is not a war passage. Listen to verses 9 and 10 from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Then verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Does that sound like we're getting ready to go to battle? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. This is not war. And he shall speak peace. And it says this to the nations. To the nations. Now, understandably, verse 16 says this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Would you, would you agree? <laughs> you might look at this and go, yeah, disciples, I, I get you. This is weird. Something's not right here. It is weird. Uh, Matthew 21 adds the fact that people were laying down their cloaks on the road for the donkey to walk on, uh, which was regarded as an act reserved only for royalty. Only for royalty. So Jesus just rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to bring peace. And seemingly the whole city is cheering on his pending military victory over Rome. This is not a triumphal entry as much as it was a about to get triumphal entry in their minds. What just happened? That's backwards. This isn't right. This is not how this is supposed to look. Something's wrong here. And then it says in verse 16, but when Jesus was glorified, so the disciples are confused. What's going on? This is all backwards. But when Jesus was glorified, not until after the cross, probably after the burial, resurrection, ascension, when the promised Holy Spirit guides them in the truth, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. <laughs> Meaning this, they realized that what we just read them seeing in verse 15 of John 12 had been prophesied in Zechariah 9. Bing! I get it. That happened, but not yet. And they realized that this had been done to him. The prophecy was fulfilled. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Understandably so. And this is the verse that gives us concern. The reason why 
the crowd went to meet him. The reason for this triumphal entry kind of a scene. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they'd heard he'd done this sign. The resurrection. This verse should give us reason for pause. Why did they go out to him? Because they'd heard he did this miracle. And we think, uh uh-oh, I've heard this before. And all the way back in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, it says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So let's put all this together. The palm leaves for the celebration of victory of triumph, the cloaks in the road that are only for royalty, the Psalm 118 about the Messiah. And by the way, that's the Psalm where it says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What is the day the Lord has made according to Psalm 118? Jesus headed towards his death. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's our salvation. So we have this prophetic psalm, the people calling Jesus their king, even while he humbly and peaceably rides in on a donkey. That's backwards. And since there was a crowd, think with me now, since there's a crowd that excitedly went out to Jesus and then followed Jesus into Jerusalem... Where was Jesus in this triumphal procession? What part of the parade was he? He was in the front. Who's in the front of a triumphal parade? Remember? The conquered king who was being led to his execution. That's where Jesus was in the triumphal entry. That's his part in this parade. He's in the front. And they were brought in to be mocked, to be ridiculed, and eventually executed. So we say, do these people get it? (laughs) Do we get it? (laughs) Have we gotten it? Do these people get it? Do they understand what Jesus had come for? Or do they not? And it seems like they don't get it. This all looks more like a post-miracle independence from Rome, hungry people finding a surefire bet to give them what they've been longing for for so long. A Messiah they've been looking for to give them what they want. Either way, a bunch of people were going to Jesus, right? That's happening. They're flocking to Jesus, and the Pharisees don't like what they're seeing. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. They're turning on each other. You failed again. Look, the world has gone after him. Good luck arresting Jesus now. The crowd seems to have turned on them. They're disobeying the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, in favor of the man who raises the dead. And they sense, the the Pharisees sense that they're losing control of the situation, which is ridiculous because they never had control of the situation in the first place. Matthew 26 shows us quite well who was in control. This is verses 1 through 5 in Matthew 26. It says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know, 
He's saying, I know, you know, that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then verse 3 says, Then, <laughs> then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Order of events there? Jesus said, we're going to the Passover and I'm going to die. And after that, they started planning on how they were going to do something about this. The bad guys, okay, the Pharisees. But they said, verse 5, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Jesus said what was going to happen before the Jewish leaders even planned anything. And Jesus would not be executed after the Passover the way they had hoped, the way they were planning. Christ would die on the very day the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. 1 Corinthians 5-7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, after having considered what's happening in and amongst the Jewish crowd, and in and amongst the Jewish leaders... We look at these verses, we see some troubling things. Number one, uh, we might have in our minds uh, Sunday school flannel graphs and coloring pages, maybe even cartoon characters of really happy people waving their construction paper palm branches and laying down their coats in the ground. Happy, 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 happy that Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Yay! But are all these people happy for the right reason? It doesn't seem like it. Remember, these same crowds, these same crowds in just a few days are going to be quoted as saying things like, Crucify Him! And His blood be on us and on our children. The same people. So this crowd of people cheering on the Messiah seem to be just as blind and confused as they have been all along as we've studied through this Gospel. And yet, Jesus again rides right into Jerusalem. He doesn't withdraw. Because unlike other times before when they wanted to make him king or when they wanted him killed, either way, now, however, it was his time. Why didn't he before? Because it wasn't God's time. But now it is. So let's go. The time for what he had come to do on the cross had come. Jesus had not come to give Israel freedom from Rome what they saw as their biggest problem. Jesus had come to bring us peace with God. These people thought Rome was their biggest problem, but instead it was their rebellion against their creator, the Lord God, that was their biggest problem. Israel's greatest problem was their sin. They were in bondage in their sin. And Jesus had come to purchase the freedom of sinners. And of course, this is not only Israel's problem, is it? This is the world's greatest need. This is my greatest need and your greatest need. Money or the lack thereof is not my greatest problem. Health or the lack thereof is not my greatest problem. A lack of self-worth or self-esteem is not my biggest problem. A lack of a sense of identity is not my biggest problem. An unhappy wife or an unhappy husband is not anyone's biggest problem. You get it, right? Insert whatever else we might want to have in this life. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is our sinful rebellion against our holy creator, God. And Jesus is now entering Jerusalem to resolve that conflict. To bring us peace through his own 
death. Also, did you notice, after we read of Jesus being your king in Zechariah 9, your meaning Israel, and after we read of Jesus being the king of Israel in this passage, then the Pharisees, in their complaining, in their despair over the terrible day they were having, bless their hearts, even though they were the, uh, they're only in one city here, only seeing one place at one time, they declare in verse 19, the world has gone after him. The world? Really? The world? Are you upset much, guys? You might say to them. Are, are you maybe exaggerating a little bit? And yet, why would the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, want to emphasize this overemphasis of the Pharisees and including the whole world as they pouted? Why would it matter so much that we would know that the Pharisees said this very thing? Verse 20 is our answer. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That's why. We've read of the Jewish crowds. We've read of the Jewish leaders. And now we turn our attention to the nations, to the world, through these Greeks. Verse 21, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And I asked, as I read this, why does uh, Philip's hometown matter? Why do we need to know this or be reminded of that? But it turns out that Bethsaida in Galilee was near the Gentile region known as Decapolis, the Decapolis, which is Greek just for ten cities. It's possible these Greeks were from that area, not too far away. And it's also therefore probable, because Philip was from there, that Philip spoke Greek. So these Greeks came to Philip and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. He needed some moral support to go and take this request to Christ. And Jesus answered them. Who's them? It could be Philip and Andrew. It could be the Greeks. It could be the crowd. I think the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> Especially given what he's about to say. Okay? The answer is applicable to all of them and to all of us. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, why hadn't Jesus withdrawn from this crowd who was trying to make him king? Because his hour had come. It was time to do what he'd come to do. But this glory that Jesus spoke of wouldn't be anything like what the crowds expected or wanted. Can you imagine the minds of these Jewish people who think Jesus, Jesus is, is going here, is coming to become their political and military hero, defeating once and for all, all Israel's foes. And then he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You're thinking, yes! And then in this moment, they all have been waiting for, he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What? What does that even mean? Jesus, you're supposed to be the, the guy like in the Braveheart movie, you know, William Wallace, and yell, Freedom! 
And then we're going to go kick Rome's rear end and, and live happily ever after. That's what's supposed to happen. Why are you talking about dying and bearing fruit? And what is Jesus talking about? Well, of course, uh, what is the death that he's speaking about? It's the death that he was to die on the cross. And what fruit is going to come from this death? Church, it's you. It's us. Look up, Jesus said. Lift your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Christ came humbly to Jerusalem that day in preparation to bring peace between a holy God and sinners by paying the penalty of our sin through his death on the cross. All the wrath that we deserve placed on him. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Redeemed from your slavery to sin. Saved from the eternal consequences of your sin. And so, through this illustration of the grain dying and then bearing much fruit, if you'll hear it, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God give you grace to understand. Jesus has just cried out, Freedom! Jesus the King came to die to give you freedom and peace with God. And then he says this, verse 25, whoever loses his life, and this word translated as life in the Greek is the word psyche, which if you came to Sunday school, you already know. This word could refer to the soul of man. Whoever loses his life loses it, and whoever hates his life or his soul in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, there's a lot to this contrast here between loses and keeps. Keeps in Greek is a word associated with guarding, guarding something to keep it safe. And the word for loses can mean uh, lose or perish or destroy. And this verb for loses is written in the active voice. It's not happening to the person. The person is doing the action. So the person who is hating his life of sin is actively guarding his soul, his life. And then the one who is loving his own sinful, fleshly, earthly, temporary life is not just allowing life to slip from their grasp, losing life. It's not that kind of a passive losing. This is not losing my keys or something like that. This is active. This person is actively attacking, actively destroying their own life. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where is that? Follow him where? Where was Jesus going? And the answer is to the cross. Jesus is saying, the time has come for my death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, which will bring about the church age, the ingathering, as we learned before, of, of his sheep from within Israel and around the whole world. Jesus is saying, I am going to die to bring this about, and so then must you, if you're going to follow me. In Hebrews 12, we're told to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and we are to follow Jesus. 
He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is Jesus' answer to the Greeks. If you want to see me, if you want to spend time in fellowship with me, see my glorification, die with me, follow me, and where I am, there you will be. Uh, listen to Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, church, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. You're free, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And, and what of this honor that Jesus promised when he said, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, how about this? Listen to John fourteen three. And if I, Jesus, go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That where I am you may be also. There's that phrase again that we just heard before. If you will go with Jesus to the cross, see him glorified as your all-sufficient Savior, and die to yourself there with him calling on him as your Lord, then you will also be given the honor of being with Jesus in glory. Does that make sense? Aren't you glad Jesus did not ignore these Greeks' request? He invited them, and with them the world, into his kingdom to a place of honor. And so the Pharisees are right. Look, the world has gone after him. So last week we got to look at the examples of Mary and Judas. Judas wanted a wealthy Judas. Mary wanted Jesus. He was her joy. He was her greatest delight. He was the highest worth, and therefore she worshipped him. So, so who were our examples this week? And what did they want? And there were three, weren't there? There were the Pharisees, the crowd, and the Greeks. Uh, the Pharisees wanted power, influence, status quo, the relationship with Rome remaining stable with them in power. And therefore, they wanted Jesus dead. But Jesus' death didn't save their status quo. It saved our souls. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. The church was born and spread. The Old Testament priesthood was no longer needed. Think about their role and their place in Israel. Christ was our once and for all sacrifice. Christ is our high priest. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, and we now have access to God. Then there's the crowd. 
The crowd wanted freedom from the rule of Rome. They wanted change and reform. Therefore, they wanted Jesus to be their earthly kind of king. They wanted a best life now Messiah. And unwittingly, perhaps, they ushered Jesus into the city to be hung on a cross. Because Jesus didn't come to make war against Rome. He came to bring peace between God and man. Then the Greeks. The Greeks wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus said he was about to be seen in his glory. And if, if all they wanted was to see Jesus, if he would be the delight of their heart, then see Jesus they did. If they stuck around, they saw Jesus high and lifted up on a cross in his glory. So then, this is where we get our main question for application from this passage. Do I want to see Jesus for who he really is in truth? And subsequently, am I willing to die to myself and to all I may hold dear in this life to follow him? Because when we see who Jesus really is, when we see the God of the universe humbling himself, taking on flesh, sacrificing himself on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God that I deserve to bring me salvation and peace and eternal life, I'm not going to care anymore how expensive that ointment is. I'm not going to care anymore if people think my hair shouldn't be let down. I'm not going to care if I have to ride a donkey instead of, instead of a flashy chariot with beautiful horses. I'm not going to care what people think about me. I'm not going to fear man and let man tell me to disobey God. I'm free. This life, this earthly life will no longer have that kind of pull on me because I'm dead. I've died and I've risen with Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'm going to worship and obey and love my Savior, Lord, and God. And do you see how in this way, really, worship and obedience and love are all pretty synonymous? They're not very different at all. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to... Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before you. Jesus had joy set before him, and he endured, and he persevered. What is the joy set before you and set before me? The only joy that will give you strength to overcome is Jesus himself. So we can endure suffering and death in this life. We can endure the shame that this world might throw at us. And what does our life look like when we look and see and behold our glorious Savior? It looks like dying and following and serving. Perspective. And why are all these things appropriate? Well, because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. So church, get your palm branches out and die with your king.
and then live forever with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he rode that young donkey into a city who wanted everything but what it seemed like he had come to do. Lord, that he moved forward because it was right and because it was time. And there was joy set before him in what he had come to do. Father, I pray you'd help us, Lord. We so often see things backwards and upside down, just like the crowds of Jerusalem, just like the Pharisees did. Lord, help us, give us wisdom from the truth of your word to see dying as gain, to see following as good, to see serving as a win, because you're our king. Lord, we know that Christ said that what the world might consider the least is the greatest in heaven. And so, Lord, give us strength and grace to die daily, that we might walk with him and follow him, that whether dead or alive, our desire, our greatest desire would be to be pleasing to you. And God, we thank you that when Christ did die on the cross, it was finished. That our sin was paid in full. All consequence, uh, eternal consequence, judgment against our sin was paid for at the cross. Lord, we acknowledge there's consequences in this life to our sin. But when we stand before you under the shed blood of Christ, we will be declared not guilty. Thank you for the life that you give to us in him. And may we, Lord, in, uh, in light of that, worship you and love you, and serve you, and obey you. And I pray, Lord, that as we do that, the way that we see people would change. Lord, so often we can look at other people that we're around at work, or in our neighborhood, at home, even in this church, and we can uh, change how we talk, or how we think, or how we act, or or what kinds of things we might uh, desire based on what those people say, or what, what we think they think about us. But God, help us to see them as, as souls who just like us are lost or were lost in our sin, who need to hear the truth of Christ. And may we boldly, unabashedly, lovingly, kindly, respectfully point them to Jesus because you're worth it, because Jesus is king. May you be honored in our response to all of this in Christ's name. Amen.